Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad that you all are here, wherever you are, and whenever you are. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone, And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by greeting the people who are around us. If you have comments this morning on the platform on which you are watching us, please do greet the other people and tell them where you're watching from. I invite you now to say the chalice lighting words with me if you were moved to do so. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship this morning is an adapted Bodhisattva vow titled Free From Suffering. It comes from the Buddhist tradition. Bodhisattva is the name given to anyone who is motivated by compassion and has a spontaneous wish to achieve Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. May all sentient beings be well and enjoy the root of happiness, free from suffering and the root of suffering. May they not be separated from the joy beyond sorrow. May they dwell in spacious equanimity free from craving, fear, and ignorance. This congregation wrote its own mission statement. We revisit it every seven years to make sure it still says what we want it to say. It guides our steps as we make decisions and move into the future together. We wrote it on the wall of our sanctuary and we say it together every Sunday. Will you join me? Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our moment for beloved community is meant to inform us all, to move us all, whether people who identify as white or people of color, toward the beloved community. I wanted to read this. I have many friends who are mixed race, and I have heard them all my life say, well, I'm half this and half that. Here's an antidote by a woman named Yumi Tomsha. I'm not half Japanese and half Lithuanian Jewish. When I'm singing a Japanese folk song, I don't sing with half my voice, but with my whole voice. When I'm taping together my grandparents' Jewish marriage contract, worn by time but still resilient, it's not half of my heart that is moved, but my whole heart. I am complete, and I embody layers of identities that belong together. I am made of layers, not fractions. And then someone else adds the comment, Kim Katrin adds the comment, it's colonization that seeks to break us into pieces. I have a friend who is a mixture of several races, and when someone says awkwardly and unfortunately to her, 
what are you? She says, I'm a post-colonial human being. Good morning. Here and now, I am standing underneath a goat bridge that allows goats to go from this pen over here up and over my head to the goat pen on the other side. Isn't that wonderful? Here and Now by Julia Denos, illustrated by E.B. Goodale. Right here, right now, you are reading this book. The book is in your lap or in your hands or in someone else's. You are sitting or you are standing or you are wrapped up in a bed. Under your bum, under your feet, is a seat, a floor, or a cloud if you are on an airplane. And under all of those things is the earth, the grass and the dirt, the earthworms and the fossils, the rocks. And the earth is spinning in the middle of space. We don't know why, but it is. And you are too. Right here, right now, while you are reading this book, many, many things are happening. Rain is forming in the belly of a cloud. An ant has finished its home on the other side of the planet. Somewhere, a telephone is ringing. An idea is blooming. Grass is pushing up through cement. A friend you haven't met yet is sitting down to dinner. There are animals, wild ones, and tame, living and breathing all around you. Muscles are growing, cities are growing, cuts and broken bones are sewing up and healing. Unseen work is being done. Right here, right now, you are becoming. Isn't it wonderful? Our meditative reading today comes to us from the Reverend Mark Morrison Reed. The Reverend Morrison Reed served as co-minister of Unitarian Universalist churches in Rochester, New York, and Toronto with his wife, the Reverend Donna Morrison Reed. He is author or editor of several books, including Black Pioneers in a White Denomination, and In Between, A Memoir of an Integration Baby. In a piece he named The Task of the Religious Community, he writes, The central task of the religious community is to unveil the bonds that bind each to all. There is a connectedness, a relationship discovered amid the particulars of our own lives and the lives of others. Once felt, it inspires us to act for justice. It's the church that assures us that we are not struggling for justice on our own, but as members of a larger community. The religious community is essential. For alone, our vision is too narrow to see what must be seen, and our strength too limited to do what must be done. Together, our vision widens, and our strength is renewed.
Now is the time when we enter into an attitude of prayer and meditation where we might just think about the reading we just heard, where we might speak or listen to God as we understand God, where we might just listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the wise silence. Let us enter into it together. If you care to, you are invited to light candles in your home, candles of joy or sorrow, hope or remembrance or determination. been pondering a little piece of wisdom for about 10 years now. A spiritual teacher of mine named Byron Katie said this, we suffer when our thoughts argue with reality. You could ponder that for a while. Fortunately, she's willing to write more than that. Her first book is called Loving What Is. And I think about that all the time. Uh, For example, I am living in this body and I was in this body when I earned a second degree black belt in karate. I had already had an artificial hip for 10 years. The black belt test went on for five hours and it did not kill me. I, years later, could still do a jump spinning whip kick depending on whether I landed on the correct leg. Um, I can't do that anymore. Years have passed and events have occurred and surgeries have gone not as well as they should have gone. And I can't do a lot of the things that I used to be able to do. I am not good at accepting that. My thoughts argue with that reality. Whenever I do something I used to be able to do and it ends up hurting me, I think... That should not have hurt me. (laughs) And I suffer, um, not just because there's pain in my body, but because I'm mad about it. Because it shouldn't be there. Uh, We've talked before about how there are events that happen to us, things that happen to us, and then 
Apart from those events, there are the stories we tell ourselves about those events afterwards. How do we try to make meaning out of those events? Why do we think those things happened? What do we think that they are trying to tell us? And it's the stories that we tell about the events that cause the most suffering when those stories do not fit with reality. Let me give you an example. You remember the old movie Moonstruck, where Nicolas Cage played uh, Ronnie Camerary, and Ronnie Camerary had had an accident in the bakery and lost his arm, and that was his whole identity. He blamed it on his brother, and it didn't take much of any contact to spark a, a screed of self-pity and anger and accusation from him at the beginning of the movie the way he was his story about that act that accident that it was shouldn't have happened and that it was his brother's fault and that here he was a young man who was who was had an artificial arm because it was his brother's fault and that was his entire identity so you can see how he was shaped by his story about the event and by his feelings about the story and his meaning that he made of the story, that his brother got everything and he got nothing. And so we spend our whole lives arguing with reality. I mean, if you're anything like me, we go, people should be kinder. We say... Uh, Leaders of nations should not be corrupt. We say, everyone who drives on 130 should go 80 miles an hour because that's what it was built for. And here you are going 55 on 130 and I'm stuck behind you and you're not even in the right lane. So I'm suffering. They're not suffering. But I'm suffering because I have the thought that argues with reality. They should be in the other lane. But what Byron Katie says is should what should be happening is not real what is happening is real and it's possible that you're correct that should be happening that way absolutely correct however it is not happening that way and you're suffering inside you you are the problem because it is an article of your religion that people should be going 80 on the road 130 because that's the speed limit We suffer when our thoughts argue with reality. This is not the same thing as resigning oneself to one's fate. Amor fati is an old Latin concept. You should fall in love with your fate. You should, you should know that whatever happens to you, even if it's not good, it's necessary. And whether it's true or not, you can have some peace of mind imagining that. That everything that happens to you, you should love whatever it is. But Byron Katie's idea of loving what is, is not the same as resigning oneself to one's fate. What it is, is a, it's a process of being curious about your thoughts and your story. You inquire of your thoughts. You inquire of your story to see if you can see how much of the story that you are suffering over is self-imposed suffering. Let me give you an example. 
she says, uh, if a thought arises, you ask it four questions. It could be a, a resentment thought or an irritation thought or an outrage thought. And I'm going to start at the everyday level, not with huge hurts, but with just tiny little irritations. And you attach to an irritation. People should drive better. People should be kinder. Folks should be on time. Uh, kids should pick their socks up off the floor. These are things that we suffer over. And here's a way of inquiring with these four questions. Um, say you live with a man who watches too much TV. So I'm living with somebody, I'm going to call him Clem. And I have this thought. Clem, you are watching too much TV. And that thought sets up a lot of dynamics right there. I start either feeling like a martyr, resigning myself to you being on your butt in front of the TV again. Or I say something like, honey. <laughs> and we always say this with a little smile, our passive aggressive. Honey, don't you think you watch too much TV? We have that conversation. And now they know, Clem knows I'm watching him, that I'm registering all his choices. And I'm pleased with him when he doesn't watch. And I get all prune-faced when he does watch. And I tell myself stories about what he's doing. And I say, oh, I think he's trashy watching that much TV. They aren't going to have anything to talk about but shows. And he's not paying enough attention to me. Byron Katie would sit me down and say, sweetheart, Clem watches too much TV. Is that true? I would say, yes. Is that true is the first question. You inquire of your thoughts. Is that true? Yes is usually the answer because that's what we have asserted. The second question is, are you absolutely certain that's true? And I think, well, absolutely certain. I mean, I don't really have the book of standards of how much TV people should watch. He just watches six hours a day. To me, that's too much, but I'm not sure if, you know, in the global scale of things, it's too much. So I go, well, I don't know. I'm, you know, maybe. Maybe it's not true. And then she says, how do you complete this sentence? Clem watches too much TV and what that means is, this is just part B of the are you sure it's true question. What that means is, he doesn't want to pay attention to me. Uh, he's wasting his brain. He's frittering away his life. That means there's no inner life that he's having. That's always noise in the house. Um, if everything were going the way I wanted, I say to her, he would talk to me. And she says, is that really what you want? We'll have to think about that now. The third question is, 
How do you react when you think that thought? Clem's watching too much TV. How do you react when you think that thought? And I say, well, I get huffy. I leave the room. I sigh. I used to know one woman who controlled her entire household with sighs. She would just walk through the dining room and go, and her kids would jump up and start setting the table. I don't know how she did it. Okay, but back to Clem. So I might sigh, or I might uh, put distance between us, or I might close my heart off from him, or I might clench my teeth, or I might snap at him. So that's how do you react when you think that thought. Number four is, can you think of a stress-free reason to hold on to this thought? Clem watches too much TV. And I think, well, that thought is causing me a lot of stress. It's causing Clem a lot of stress. All of my hemming and hawing and sighing and folding my arms and making suggestions and being passive-aggressive or even directly saying, you watch too much TV, I can't stand it. Um, None of that has made any difference. So can I think of a stress-free reason to hang on to that thought? Clem watches too much TV. No, I really can't. And she says, I'm not asking you to drop that thought because you can't drop your thoughts. Your thoughts are your thoughts. They come in like raindrops. You just have to notice them. But if you are looking at it and you want to know the truth of your situation, you think, Really, I should just let go of that thought and live my happy life. Then here comes a part that I think is magical. She calls it the turnaround. She says, say this, say these things. She has a worksheet. It's on a website called thework.com and it's free, which I really admire about her. Um, Say these things. Clem's wasting his life. Clem's not talking to me. Clem is wasting his brain. And he could be doing so many other things. She says, let's turn that around and say the opposite thing. And then I go, I'm wasting my brain. I'm not talking to myself. I'm not... I'm not keeping my brain full of things that would help me because my brain is full of Clem watches too much TV. I think he's frittering away away his life. Am I frittering away my life trying to be in his business and control his TV watching? She doesn't have to say anything else at that point. I go, oh my goodness, all the things I was thinking about him are really true about me because I'm not in my own business. I'm in Clem's business about how he watches too much TV, but I watch too much Clem watching TV. I just love some of the things that come out of the work with her. She did a session with a 20-year-old boy named Justin who said his family made him really angry because they kept judging him. And they acted like they wouldn't love him unless he fit a certain mold they had for him. And that hurt. She said, sweetheart, because that's what she does. She calls her people that she's talking to, honey and sweetheart. She goes, sweetheart. So parents should not judge their children. Is that, is that right? He says, right. 
She said, but are you sure that's true? Because, honey, people judge. That's reality. That's reality. We have to fall in love with reality. It makes our mind more peaceful. People judge each other. She says, honey, it's planet Earth. Welcome. Make yourself at home. People judge. How do you react when you think that thought? My parents shouldn't judge me. He says, well, I get mad. I don't go around there much. I don't visit. I sit quietly in the corner. I guess I'm not a lot of fun to be around because I'm thinking that they aren't being the parents that they should be. They aren't being the parents they should be, she said. They shouldn't judge you. Is this an easy thing you want them to do? Stop judging? Who would you be if you didn't think that thought? And she says, I'm not asking you to drop it. Just who would you be if you didn't think that thought? And he says, well, I'd be happier. I'd be more fun to be around. She says, let's try the turnaround. Can you say the opposite thing? They shouldn't judge me. I shouldn't judge them. Oh, I'm judging them. And I have this mold that I think they should fit for me to act loving toward them. I'm doing exactly the same thing that they're doing. (sighs) The four questions. When you have a thought, this should be this way. This shouldn't be that way. What that means for me is my sister hit me. And what that means is she doesn't love me. Is that true? My mother wouldn't bail me out of a debt. What that means is she doesn't love me. Is that true? Unexamined thoughts. The stories you tell yourself about what happens. My daughter has gotten on drugs again. That means she loves her drugs more than she loves me. Is that true? Is that true? Are you sure that that's true? One, is it true? Two, are you absolutely sure it's true? Three, how do you feel, act, behave when you think that thought? Four, who would you be if you didn't have that thought? What is a stress-free reason to keep that thought? And I'm not asking you to drop the thought, she says. Just who would you be without it? And can you think of a stress-free way? A stress-free reason to keep the thought. It really gives you a lot to think about. How many stories might you be telling yourself about things that happen in your life? How much of your suffering is from an actual event and how much of it is from the story you tell yourself about the event or the meaning you make of the event? If somebody cuts you off in traffic, and I've told you this before, I think about it a lot, do you think they're an idiot? They don't care. They're an anarchist. They're a communist. They are a terrible fascist. I can't believe they cut me off in traffic. And what my friend Pat Job always says, as I've told you before, is uh, bless his heart. I bet he just got out of the hospital. That's a different story. Makes all the difference in here. 
How much of our suffering are we responsible for our own selves? And how much could we lift just by asking a few questions about our thoughts? Now please join me, if you wish, in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. My only announcement is that wherever you live and whether you've ever been here in person or not, if you'd like to be on the first UU Austin mailing list and find out everything that's going on here and all the Zoom links and all the passwords and all the Facebook times, um, just go to the website of First UU Austin and go all the way to the bottom and subscribe to the newsletter. At the top of the newsletter is all the Facebook stuff. Then comes all the Zoom schedule. And then after that come the announcements of things coming up and the uh, uh, newsletter articles written by various committees and the board and the ministers and um, all kinds of stuff that you might want to peruse if you have the time. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.